This is Manna at Valley Baptist Church. Together, we take an in-depth, expository look at God's Word. So open your Bible and join us as we do life together. And now, here's Brad Hannick. Fellow students, if you would open to Deuteronomy 34, the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to be finishing up the life of Moses and uh, tagging into the end of Numbers. Lord willing, next week we'll begin in the book of Romans. Uh, so you probably got passed out a quarterly last week. If not, we'll make sure you get them to you today. Uh, today we're going to talk about being told no. Have you ever been told no? You have missed a major part of your education. You might remember your parents telling you no as a child. Ever wonder how often God has to say no to people's prayer requests? Some of the best prayers come from children. Sarah says, Dear God, Please change the taste of asparagus. It's just grass. <laughs> Jacob says, Dear God, are you a ninja? Is that why I can't see you? Dear God, would you make me a baby brother? I want somebody to boss around. Amen. <laughs> Dear God, when will my sister stop being annoying? I'm down to my last patience. Yeah, I ran out of that a long time ago. Dear God, here's my favorite. I need you to make my mom not allergic to cats. I really want a cat, and I really don't want to ask her to move out. <laughs> Today, we're going to be looking at the very last days of Moses. He's 120 years old. God has used him to bring Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and right up to the border of the land of Canaan. His life's work is completed, but his life ends on a bittersweet note. He's been used mightily by God. He's been allowed to perform multiple miracles, but his great dream of leading Israel into the promised land has been shattered through his own disobedience. God has told Moses, no, you are not going into the promised land. And Moses pleaded with God to change his mind, Deuteronomy 3.25 Moses said, let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough, speak to me no more of this matter. Here's the principle. When God says no, it's because he knows what's best and he loves us the most. When God says no... It's because he knows what's best, and he loves us the most. Now, most of us don't think no is a good thing. The truth is, when God says no, it's always a good thing, never a bad thing, because God's no is designed to protect us from things that would harm us, because most of the time, or much of the time, or some of the time, we ask for that which is not good for us. We think it is, but it's not. We're kind of like children who are captivated by bright, shiny objects, and we ask God to get us one of those bright, shiny objects, and the Lord knows that that's not going to be healthy for us. So when God says no, it's because he wants something better for us 
than what we're asking for at the time. C.S. Lewis wrote once, We are not necessarily doubting that God's will is the best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Many, many people will take a rain check on following God if following God involves pain or struggle or suffering, they'll just say, Lord, I'll come back around later when you're going to tell me yes. Because most humans, all of us in one level, like pleasure today. We'd rather have pleasure now than pain today. But see, God always has our eternal good in mind. And you know, and we've all told our children this, or we've heard it, long-term gain often involves short-term pain. Yeah, right. <laughs> Long-term gain almost always involves short-term pain. Most people really, really want the long-term gain of being fit, but find it hard to pay the short-term price of daily exercise that's required to be fit. You know, God doesn't have that problem. Our Heavenly Father is relentless, and God will use any means necessary to shape us in the image of his son. You can take that to the bank. Any means necessary to shape us into the image of his son, Romans 8, 28. You've all heard of Michelangelo's statue in David in Florence, Italy, 17-foot-tall statue. I thought this week, if marble had feelings, that's a stretch, but if marble had feelings, and statues could talk. I wonder what that 17-foot-tall David would describe when Michelangelo was cutting, sawing, chiseling, hammering, sanding that marble into that current beautiful shape. That's a couple-year process. If marble had feelings, I'm sure David would tell us it was painful. Now, God shapes our lives... But he doesn't shape them just through subtraction. He shapes them through addition. God brings some things into our lives, right? And he takes some things out of our lives. You're nodding. I understand that that probably happened to you too. However, many times we don't like God's math. He sometimes brings things into our lives we'd prefer that he not bring in. And many times he takes things out of our lives that we really are attracted to. God is shaping us through that addition and subtraction. And we don't like it because many times we have different goals than God. Our goal is pleasure today, comfort today, ease today, and God is working for eternity. And he is going to shape us into the image of his son. And if he needs to sand us, if he needs to chisel us, if he needs to take the hammer, if he needs to encourage us, if he needs to hug us tight, he will use whatever is required to make us look like Jesus. We often get fooled by appearances, and that's why I resist his shaping process. Ethene glycol is the main ingredient in automotive antifreeze. And in case you've never tried it, it's very, very sweet. It's very appetizing for both children and pets. However, in sufficient quantity, ethyl glycol antifreeze is extremely lethal. A couple of ounces will kill an average household pet. Matter of fact, more than a few murders have taken place using this because once it's ingested in the system, it leaves no trace. So it's a very lethal, sweet-tasting poison. 
and you put it in your radiator, right? That's Satan. Satan is always offering us the sweet-tasting poison of sin. Satan will always dip his arsenic in chocolate. Always. He extols the pleasure of sin, but he doesn't tell you that sin will kill you. Now, when God says no to us, it's an expression of his sovereign wisdom because he loves us, and he knows what's best for us. So when God adds to our lives or takes away from our lives, he always has purpose, and that purpose is the image of his son. When God says no, it's designed to draw us closer to him so that he can give us what we really need. And you know what we really need? Him. What we really need is him. We really don't need anything else other than him and whatever he chooses to provide. How many of you ever told your children no? Those of you that didn't are living with the consequences, right? <laughs> Those of you that did are also living with the consequences. So, <clears throat> have you ever had your child ask, why are you telling me no? And sometimes you'd explain, or you'd try to. And sometimes you would say, trust me, I'm the parent. <coughs> trust me, I'm the parent. I know what's best for you. This is what we're going to do. Period. You know, as I look back over my life, I am increasingly grateful for the times God said no to me and closed the door on what I thought I wanted. As a matter of fact, the times I remember the most is when he just slammed the door in my fingers because I wouldn't take no for an answer. So I picked up a little scar tissue along the way. So God has now told Moses no to a 40-year dream. Deuteronomy 32, verse 48. The Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up this, to this mountain of Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because... You broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land from a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. Here's the principle. Disobedience destroys our intimacy with God and blocks the blessings of God in our lives. Disobedience destroys our intimacy with God and blocks the blessings of God in our lives. God always does what is perfectly just, perfectly right. Abraham, when he prayed to the Lord over the destruction of Sodom, he said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's absolutely correct. The judge of all the earth always does what's perfectly right. Moses and Aaron had exalted themselves and refused to glorify God. God told Moses, speak to the rock, and I'm going to bring water for the children of Israel out of the rock, a miracle. And Moses struck the rock and said, shall we bring water for you out of the rock? So they were taking credit. They were basically saying, this miracle of water out of the rock, we have the power to make happen. Now, God graciously brought water, for, water out of the rock to provide for his children, 
But Moses and Aaron took credit for what only God could do. They didn't treat God as holy. They didn't glorify God. They exalted themselves. And that sin had irrevocable consequences because they, in Scripture, they had sinned with what Scripture says is a high hand, a raised fist. God said, I want you to do this. And they said, yeah, 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 we're going to do it our way. You've had children look you in the eye and literally say, I'm going to do it my way. Correct? You might have done that yourself at some point. So this sin had irrevocable consequences, and in light of that, they both were refused entrance into the promised land. Now, all sin is forgivable, except, of course, the sin of refusing to receive God's forgiveness through faith in Christ. There is no other source of forgiveness other than the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for our sins. So if you reject that, then there is no forgiveness for sin. You've rejected the only mechanism God has to forgive our sin and reconcile us through the for blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So Moses and Aaron's sin was forgiven, but sin always has consequences. And some sin has pretty severe consequences. And you say, well, how come Moses and Aaron had such severe consequences? Well, they had been given positions of high privilege. They had spoken to God, Moses especially, face to face on multiple occasions. God had said to Moses, you represent me to my people. When he came out of the mountain on more than one occasion down from Mount Sinai, his face shone with the reflected glory of God. So when Moses spoke, people said, that's God talking because Moses has been speaking to God. So he represents God to us. So Moses had been given tremendous privileges, but he was also given tremendous responsibilities. And guess what? So have you and I. Luke 12, 48 states a very, very succinct principle that applies to you and I today. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So God had said, Moses, you represent me to the nation. You speak for me to the nation. And you are to honor me. And Moses had broken that trust in God and God's trust in him, and he honored himself above God. Now, you and I, like Moses, we have been given much. We have been given God's word. We have been given God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have been given God's Holy Spirit. We have, he has even adopted us into his own family and called us his own. So we have been given a great deal. We honor God you and I today, when we give him credit for what he does. See, when people see Jesus operating in you and they see you behaving like Jesus would have you operate, I know that's not natural. That is supernatural. And they say, wow, how come you were so patient? And you go, oh, just kind of who I am. That's called taking credit for what God did. When people notice Jesus in us, we are to what? Give him the glory and say, that's because Jesus lives in me. That's why I didn't shoo your head off, even though I wanted to, right? We give God glory when we give him the credit for his blessings. You know another way we give God glory? When we say thank you. Gratitude is a phenomenal way of honoring God. I am utterly amazed at people that eat food and don't thank God for the food before they eat. You hungry? Did God provide the food? 
Say thank you. That's a practical way of honoring God, right? And giving him the credit for what he has done in your life. Moses didn't do that. He took the credit for producing the miracle, which obviously he didn't do. God did. So the consequences of Moses' sin was death. Now, death is not an accident. Death is a divine appointment, and everyone in this room and everyone in planet Earth has a date on God's calendar, and it's already written down. Hebrews 9.27 says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. The truth is, our bodies are going into a box, and our stuff is going into the landfill. Al Mohler, in his book, The Conviction to Lead, which I was reading the other day, recounts the story of an old preacher who told a group of younger preachers to remember that no matter how good they thought they were, they too would die. And this is what the old preacher said to the young preachers. They're going to put you in a box and put the box in the ground and throw dirt on your face, and then they're going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. (laughs) You and I have done that. We have gone to funerals and memorial services, and we've gone back to church and said, the barbecue was really good, and we've gone home. That's going to happen to all of us someday. Now, the good news is, if you know Jesus, you won't even care. You're with Jesus in heaven. You don't care if the potato salad tastes good or not. It doesn't matter, right? So as a result of this sin, God said, I'm going to let you see the promised land but you're not going to go into the promised land. However, interestingly enough, I'll jump ahead, Moses did get into Canaan. It was just about 1,400 years later, near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, God sent Moses and Elijah down from heaven to meet with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Luke 9, 28-31 records that Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John to probably was the southern slopes of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is about 9,200 feet high, way up by Lebanon, and they probably were up on the southern slopes. And he took them there to reveal his heavenly glory to them. And it says he became white and bright and effulgent, brighter than the sun. They couldn't even look at him. They saw his glory, what he was really like in heaven. And Moses and Elijah were having a conversation with Jesus about his upcoming departure. And, of course, the word departure means literally exodus. Now, Moses knew some things about the exodus, right? He'd been kind of through that. And that exodus, they were talking with Jesus about his upcoming death, resurrection, and his ascension back into heaven. So they were discussing this with Jesus. So Moses did get into Canaan's land, but first he got into heaven's land. You know, no matter how beautiful Canaan was, there's no match for heaven. No matter how good this life is, and this life really is good, God has blessed us with a vast number of blessings. No matter how good this life is, it doesn't hold a candle to heaven. That's why Paul wrote in Colossians, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Okay, let's go to Deuteronomy 34, where you have your Bibles open, and let's pick up the rest of Moses' life, the very end of his life. He's probably now within the last couple of days. Chapter 34, verse 1. This actually is the very last day. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, 
to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan and all Naphtali and all the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea and the Negev and the plain in the, Jer- in the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Verse four. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Rob's going to show you a view, if you will, from the top of Mount Nebo, sort of a panoramic view. This last chapter, by the way, of Deuteronomy was obviously not written by Moses. It describes his death. It was probably written by Joshua to bridge the end of Numbers to the book of end of Deuteronomy, the book of Numbers. And the word Pisgah is the Hebrew word for height or ridge. Mount Nebo is the highest point on this ridge of Pisgah, if you will. It's about 2,100 feet above sea level. So you you do have quite a a large elevation. The the air was probably a bit cleaner back then, just saying, John. So you could probably get a better view. Moses probably had a little better view than what we have here. And this Mount Nebo is about six miles from the border of Israel six miles east. So it's in modern-day Jordan. Mount Nebo is in modern-day Jordan, and Moses was up about 2,100 feet looking over the entire land. So we had this panoramic view. And God was going to show Moses the entire land of Canaan. Rob's going to show you a map, kind of the division of the land of Canaan by tribes. And if you look on the map, on the east side of this map, on the right side, you'll see several tribes. The tribe of Reuben, And Mount Nebo is in their tribal territory. It's just right below, just right on the northern border of Reuben. That's where Mount Nebo is. So Moses, God shows Moses the land. And he starts in the upper right-hand corner, the northern part of the land of Israel. And he starts with Dan and Naphtali, which is way up in the north. Today, that would be right south of Lebanon. And then he shows Moses a land, he sweeps his house counterclockwise. He goes from the north country to the central hill country of Ephraim and Manasseh were located. And he looks over finally to Judah in the south and Jericho and Negev and Zoar in the south. Now the western sea that they describe here is the Mediterranean Sea, obviously. And the Negev is this desert that's south of Beersheba. And that is really uninhabited desert. And it's really uninhabited to this day, other than a few uh, palm groves and things like that. There's just not much water, one to two inches uh, per year. The plain in the valley of Jericho is part of the Great Rift Valley. And that Great Rift Valley is a couple continental plates, and it really goes all the way up. And the Jordan Valley that the Jordan flows in is the very northern part of that Great Rift Valley. So Moses is literally on one side of the Great Rift Valley, and the nation's on the other side. And Jordan River, and the lowest part on the earth is the Dead Sea. It's about 1,300 feet below sea level. That's the lowest part on the earth, and the Jordan River flows down from Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet, all the way down into the Dead Sea. And so Moses has this large panoramic view of all the tribes of Israel, where they're going to be. Joshua is going to give them this land to divide it up. Now, normally, you could not see the Mediterranean Sea from Mount Nebo. Because the mountains around Jericho, or I mean around Jerusalem, are about 2,600 feet tall. Moses is at 2,100. So we don't know whether God supernaturally enabled Moses to see beyond what he can naturally see with his own eyes. We're not sure. But it says God showed him 
the land, all the land. So God was demonstrating to Moses, look, I promised the sons of Israel, I promised Abraham that I would give them this land and I am going to bring them in and I'm going to show you. Here it is and it is a good land. And what's interesting and painful is had Israel not refused to follow God at Kadesh Barnea, they could have been in the land 38 years earlier. They didn't have to spend 38 years in the wilderness. They could have gone in probably after two years was God's plan for them to take that trip. And we said last week, sin will take you farther than you want to go, leave you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. So the children of Israel, it cost them 38 years. And in Moses' case, his own sin cost him entrance into the promised land, which I'm sure was a price tag beyond what he had even dreamed. What was even more tragic is that sin of Moses occurred in the very last months of his life. He was 120 years old. He'd been faithfully following God. Not sin-free, but he'd been faithfully following God. And 120 years old is old enough to know better, right? Unfortunately, Moses is not unique. More than a few of God's saints have tragically sinned in middle age or beyond, which lets every single one of us not off the hook, right? Because that's where most of us are. We're all old enough to know better. Moses got drunk and shamefully naked when he was 600 years old. Now that would be old enough to know better. Just saying. 600. Noah, 600 years old. He lived over 900 years. This was after the flood. Abraham was at least 75 years old when he lied to Pharaoh and told him that his wife Sarah was only his sister. Well, she was his half-sister, so it was kind of a a white lie, right? Still a bold-faced lie. So Pharaoh took Sarah into his harem. Of course, God protected Sarah And it didn't turn out very well, but Abraham lied when he was 75 years old. Aaron had made a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, encouraged Israel to worship this golden calf, and he was 83 or 84 years old when he did this. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband at age 50. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, married a thousand women, that not an oxymoron? <laughs> Wisest man, thousand women. Wisest man, thousand. I can't drink enough caffeine to put those together. That does not work. And it said he allowed his many foreign wives to turn his heart from away from the Lord, and he was late in life when he did this. Horace Gum said, "Stupid is as stupid does." Yes. Okay, So Satan is always setting ambushes for us. Satan will plant ambushes for you on the way to the cemetery. None of us are safe until we're face-to-face with Jesus. So we are always having to stay spiritually alert, spiritually on guard, in prayer, trusting the Lord to lead us, asking the Holy Spirit to fill us and give us discernment as we talked about in the past. Chapter 32, verse 34, verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, God, buried him in the valley 
in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial site to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning came to an end. Here's the principle. We should be actively serving Jesus until the day he calls us home to heaven. We should be actively serving Jesus until the day he calls us home to heaven. God called Moses the servant of the Lord. And Moses died with disappointment. He died with unanswered prayer. There were some things he wanted that didn't happen. And yet God still called him the servant of the Lord. Now in the Old Testament, that phrase, the servant of the Lord, is the highest praise that God can give to anyone in the Old Testament. A servant is one who carries out the will of another. They perform work for somebody else. The servant of the Lord represents God on planet earth and carries out God's will on earth. So Moses was a servant of the Lord. I ran into this definition the other day and it really bothered me, so I thought I would share it and see if it bothers you too. <laughs> you know that you are really a servant when people treat you like a servant. And it doesn't bother you. Because you understand that you are really serving Jesus when you serve them. I'm the idiot that wrote that. <laughs> now, I'm sure the Lord has already tested me and said, let's see if you can live up to that. Sentences are very easy to write. And then the Lord says, let's put it in a muscle and bone. You know that you are really a servant when people treat you like a servant. And it doesn't bother you because you understand that you are really serving Jesus when you are serving them. I have not attained that yet by any stretch. So this description, servant of the Lord, was used of Abraham, Job, Moses, Caleb, Joshua, David, Isaiah. Very, very, very high praise. Of course, the ultimate servant of the Lord is Jesus Christ, who did the will of his Father perfectly, our Messiah. And God describes Moses, he said, Moses died according to the word of the Lord, which means that Moses did not die of natural causes. Moses did not die of old age. Scripture says his eye was not dim, his vigor was not abated. He was 120 years old and he was in full, strong health. He died at full strength in full stride running toward the goal. It's not old age. It was a physical impairment that prevented Moses from leading Israel into the land of Canaan. God took his life as an act of judgment for his disobedience. And that's intensely sobering. Moses died when God said it was time to die, and not one day earlier. Guess what? You and I will die the day God says it's time to die, and not one day early. You know what that means? Stop worrying. You are bulletproof until Jesus says, come home. And when he says, come home, you graduate. You get the best seat in the house. You get out of this cesspool and you get to paradise. What's not to like, right? Psalm 139, verse 16 tells us that the exact number of our days on earth is already written down in God's calendar in heaven. So the message for us is real simple. 
If we're bulletproof until the day God takes us into heaven, don't leave life relaxing in a lounge chair with a drink in your hand. Leave life in a chariot with a sword in your hand. Be about your heavenly father's business until he says it's time to come home. Moses worked until the day, the day God said, come home. And of course, since we don't know how many days we have left, we ought to be living as if each day is our last day, because someday it will be. Thursday, December 21, 1899. After cutting short a Kansas City crusade and returning home in ill health, D.L. Moody told his family, I'm not discouraged. I want to live as long as I am useful. But when my work is done, I want to be up and off. The next day, Moody awakened after a, race, after a restless night. In careful, measured words, he said, Earth recedes, heaven opens before me. His son, Will, concluded his father was dreaming. No, this is no dream, Will. This is beautiful. It's like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me, and I must go. When God calls you home, you're leaving here. Yes? And guess what? You won't negotiate to stay. You'll want to go if you know him because you want to see him face to face. It's interesting that in Moses' case, God did not call Moses to come up. God came down to the top of Mount Nebo and met Moses on the mountain. There was no other human being with Moses when he died, but Moses did not die alone because it says he died in the presence of the Lord. God honored his servant Moses by allowing him to spend the last moments of his life on earth in intimate fellowship with God, perhaps even face to face like he did on Mount Sinai. The scriptures don't say, so we can't draw any conclusions with that, but we do know that Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the Lord, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his godly ones. So when you attend a memorial service, memorial service is saying goodbye. Don't be concerned who shows up at your memorial service. I don't think you'll be concerned. Be concerned about who's on the welcoming committee on the other side. That's what you want. Who's going to be there to welcome me? And there's going to be a vast company of witnesses, Hebrews 11 tells us, and 12, welcoming you, and most importantly, Jesus Christ, our Savior. God himself buried Moses, although perhaps it was God and the archangel Michael who buried Moses together. Jude verse 9 says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. It seems as though Satan demanded control over Moses' body after his death, and the archangel Michael was ordered by God to thwart Satan's plans. And it obviously says that Michael won that contest by invoking God's name and imposing God's authority over Satan. We don't know this, but it's very likely that Satan probably wanted control of Moses' body so he could relocate it so the Israelites would find it. You can only imagine what the Israelites would do with Moses' body. They would build a shrine. Moses. 
They would begin to worship the memory of this great leader who saw God face to face. And Satan would use the body of Moses to cause them to violate the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. Worship God alone. Don't worship humanity. So the text tells us that God buried Moses, but he buried him where no one could find him, in the valley, not on the mountain, but the valley of Beth Peor. If Israel knew where Moses was buried, they would dig his body up and take it with him into Canaan, right? Just like they did with Joseph's bones. That wasn't going to work because God had said what to Moses? You're not getting into the land. The normal time of mourning for a loved one in that era was seven days. And Israel mourned for Moses for 30 days. It's sad, but often a leader is more appreciated after their death than during their life. Have you noticed that one of the best ways to have your former enemies praise you is to drop out of a presidential race? <laughs> While you're competing with them, man, they're going to dagger you to death. But once you drop out because you don't have funding or whatever, the kudos really come. Oh, such a grand leader, such a noble person. Yeah, once you stop being a threat to their election campaign, they can pass out the goodies, right? Unfortunately, that's true. Many times leaders are appreciated more after their death than during their life. However, 30 days is enough. After 30 days, it was time for the morning to stop, right? Israel could not live by looking in the rearview mirror at Egypt and Moses. It was time to leave the past behind and follow God into the future. And the future was what? The land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was what had been promised to them by God, but the land of Canaan was a serious threat. It was filled with nation states and tribes that had armies far larger, far more sophisticated than Israel's. So when they said, God said, you're going into Canaan, that means I'm leading you into a fight. And that battle for Canaan was a multi-year conflict. It didn't happen in a week or a month. It took years to conquer the land, stage by stage by stage by stage. So when we say, gee, I really want to get to Canaan's land, remember, there's always a battle for Canaan. Whatever God has, you, has for you in the future, he will lead you there. You follow him, but it's not going to be on a chase lounge. It's going to be in a chariot. And you will have a sword in your hand if you're going to take the territory that God has for you by faith in your future. So they had to leave the past behind, follow God in the future. And they had a number of years of battle to look forward to, but God had already promised and taken care of that. He'd already chosen and prepared their next leader, verse 9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Here's the principle. We can boldly follow God by faith because the Spirit of God will enable us to finish the work He calls us to do. We can boldly follow, you could almost say we must boldly follow God by faith because the Spirit of God will enable us to finish the work He calls us to do. Charles Wesley once said, God buries His workers but carries on His work. You and I are here and only here because faithful men and women have gone before us. And as we talked about last week, 
pass the baton of faith to us. We now have a baton of faith, and what's our job? Pass it on, pass it on, pass it on, pass it on to whoever the Lord has in mind for us. That's our job. We're carrying the baton of faith, the truth that man and God can be reconciled through Jesus Christ, and our job is to pass that baton to the next generation. Leaders come and leaders go, but God the Holy Spirit is eternal. So God had used Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt and up to the promised land. The Holy Spirit now was equipping Joshua to lead Israel into the promised land. What Israel now needed was a military general, not a lawgiver. God knew that, and he had been preparing Joshua for the last 80 years. So when Moses had fulfilled his purpose as Israel's lawgiver and leader, he died. And God already prepared Joshua to take his place. And this pattern occurs throughout history and has been going on since Adam and Eve. Acts 13.36 says, For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his father and went decay, underwent decay. In Acts, Luke is contrasting Jesus, God's son, who obviously did not undergo decay because he was raised from the dead, with David, who had died and, and decayed in the grave. However, the most interesting part of this is, is while David was alive, he was busy discovering and doing and serving God's purpose for his life. It's interesting to me that on nine separate occasions, the Bible records this phrase, and David inquired of the Lord. Nine separate times, Scripture says, and David inquired of the Lord. It seems to have been a habit pattern of his life when he was facing a decision to do what? Ask God. Now, that would be a pretty good strategy, right? If you're facing a decision and you're not sure what to do, what should your number one course of action be? Pray first. Why would you not talk to the God who controls the future, right? He knows what we need, and he's obviously all-powerful. Well, David had a habit of inquiring the Lord, David wanted to know God's will for his life so he could do God's will for his life. It's interesting that each of these leaders in Scripture are called to do a specific job, and God given that job to do. Moses was called to lead Israel out of Egypt, and he did it. David was called to be God's shepherd king for the nation of Israel, and he did it. Joshua was called to conquer Canaan and then to divide the land among the 12 tribes, and he did it. Paul was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and God has given you a specific task to do for the rest of your life. Ephesians 2.10, we've gone over this before. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them, so that we should do them. Not just any good works, but everyone in this room, by name, has a specific set of good works that God's already pre-assigned to you. You have an eternal job description to carry out. It's already written down. God created you specifically, gave you the skills, the ability, the spiritual gifts, the talents, the DNA, whatever you need to accomplish what he has for you. You know, we say this phrase, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And we mean that with respect to salvation, and that's true. But he also has a wonderful plan for your life every single day. It's intriguing if you thought, you know, God's got a plan for me this afternoon. I wonder what it is. Of course, 
Brad, in his brilliant wisdom, has said on thousands of occasions, I think I want to do my plan this afternoon. I don't want to know what your plan is. Because they might disagree with my plan. And of course, my plan is superior. Because I'm just so brilliant, right? Now that's stupid talking, Forrest Gump, right? If God has a plan for us for this afternoon, then why wouldn't it be priority one to say, why don't we ask God what he's got in store for us this afternoon? See, it's our responsibility to find out what God's plan is. And you, you've got the operating manual right here, right? The Bible. You can actually read this thing and it'll tell you. And you can ask him for guidance every day. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, be careful how you live or walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The wise person doesn't waste their time on the trivial. They invest their life in the essential. And of course, most of us don't have to look very far and say, well, yeah, we live in evil times, right? It's kind of not getting better. And people are dying without Christ every day, so we should be investing our life in things that matters for eternity. I have a very good friend right now who has less than 90 days to live. Probably less than 60. He needs to know Jesus. I don't know that he's interested, but he's getting interested because he knows he's leaving here. He needs to know Jesus, and I told him, I want you in heaven with me. It really is about eternity. You know people every day. You read the obits, and you say, huh, they're younger than me. And I knew them. I used to go to school with them, and they're now in eternity. Hope they knew Jesus. Our job is to pass the baton of faith so they can go to heaven. And Jesus Christ can be glorified and they can live forever with him. See, Moses is a pretty good model for wise living. When you read the life of Moses, you see two phrases occur over and over and over and over. And the two phrases are, and the Lord spoke to Moses. That's number one. And the Lord spoke to Moses. God was always speaking to Moses. And you say, well, Brad, he was a little unique. I mean, you know, he was called the Leomite of the land, and he was only one. How often does the Lord speak to us? I will tell you, he speaks to us more often than we listen, right? I'm convinced God wants to speak to us on an ongoing basis. How often do you speak to your loved ones? Answer whenever you can, right? I mean, when you're around your loved ones, you like to communicate with them. You like to talk with them. You like to interact with them. Our Heavenly Father loves to speak with us. He loves to guide us. He loves to tell us he loves us. He loves to encourage us. He loves to lead us. And the Lord spoke to Moses. You can put your name in there. And the Lord spoke to me. I have no worries that God's speaking to us all the time. The second phrase is the one that bothers me. And Moses did just as the Lord commanded. That phrase shows up dozens of times in the Pentateuch. The Lord spoke to Moses, and Moses did kind of what the Lord commanded. No, it says that Moses did just what the Lord commanded. That's profound obedience. 
See, the Lord doesn't speak to us face to face with an audible voice like he did to Moses. But every time we open God's word, God's speaking. Every time some pastor's preaching God's word on the radio, God's speaking. Every time we pray, God's speaking. Every time your circumstances turn left, right, forward, back, a door opens, a door closes, God's speaking. Every time you run into a friend who says something, da, 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 you ought to listen to what the Lord says. God's speaking. God's speaking all the time to us. The question is, do we have our ears on and is our heart available to obey? Moses did just as the Lord commanded. God summarizes Moses' life in the very last verses of the book of Deuteronomy. And he says in verse 10, Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Here's the principle. In light of eternity, God's evaluation of your life is the only one that matters. In light of eternity, God's evaluation of your life is the only one that matters. See, when people stand before God in judgment, and every single person will stand before God in judgment, God only has three assessments. You know that? God doesn't have hundreds. There's only three things God's going to say. One of three things to every single person who ever lived and who ever dies. Number one, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 7. Those who refuse to accept Christ's payment for their sin will have to pay for their own sin. In hell, separated from God forever. That's number one. I never knew you depart from me, you practice lawlessness. Second assessment God has. 1 Corinthians 3.15 tells us that some Christians will get into heaven based on their faith in Christ, but even though they were Christians, they spent their whole life living for themselves. And all their good works, everything they did was based on themselves, and their self-centered good works are going to burn up. And they will get into heaven, but they will not get there with any rewards. They will kind of smell like smoke because they kind of got through the fire on the way. 1 Corinthians 3.15. Third word from the Lord, and this is the one you want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master, Matthew 25. So God describes his relationship with Moses in very intimate terms, face-to-face terms. You know, today we communicate with each other in lots of different ways, right? We can text, we can email, we can talk on the phone, we can screen-to-screen FaceTime and all these other kinds of things. However, despite what people tell you, there is nothing as intimate as flesh and blood. Eye-to-eye, face-to-face communication with the people we love. And that's, kind of, that's the intimacy that Moses had with God, and that's the kind of intimacy that God wants with us today. Our God is so close that he's only one prayer away. One prayer away. God never sleeps. He never turns his iPhone on silent. He never takes a vacation. And best of all, he loves to hear from his children. I have a question for you grandparents. What happens to your heart rate when your grandchild calls? It says, Papa, Mimi, whatever your name is. What happens? Does your heart go pitter-patter? Do you go, oh, yes. Do you stop what you're doing because your grandchild's calling? Of course you do. 
God loves to hear you call his name. He loves to hear from his children. In summarizing Moses' life, I thought D.L. Moody probably did it as good as anyone. D.L. Moody said, for 40 years, Moses thought he was a somebody. For 40, that's when he was in the palace in Egypt. For 40 years, Moses thought he was a nobody. That was when he was squeezing sand in his toes, being a shepherd in the desert for his father-in-law. For 40 years, he found out what God can do with a nobody. That's when he spent 40 years in the world of his children of Israel. Here's the great news. God only works with nobodies. That's all his power works through is with nobodies. Which means as long as we humble ourselves before God, he can do whatever he chooses through our lives. And no matter how big your plans are, God has plans to work through us to accomplish eternal purposes and bring glory to him and blessing to us. So I commend humble service for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's review, and then Marty will lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, when God says no, and he will say no, it's because he knows what's best and he loves us most. Number two, disobedience destroys our intimacy with God and blocks the blessings of God in our lives. You know, the greatest cost of disobedience is the break in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. That's the greatest cost. It's that loss of intimacy with the Father. It's, it's, it's the blocking of the blessing. It's the relational cost. And this is what happens when our children disobey us. They're still our children. We're always going to love them. But it blocks our intimacy because they're, they're rebelling against our will. If you disobey, repent early, please. Number three. We should be actively serving Jesus until the day he calls us home to heaven. And by the way, you are some of my heroes in this class because almost all of you are involved in serving. I don't care if it's got a formal title. You are involved in serving Jesus with your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors. Whatever it happens to be, a cup of cold water done in the name of Jesus for somebody else will not lose its reward. I commend you for your service and I encourage you to continue. Number four. We can boldly follow God by faith. We should boldly follow God by faith. We must boldly follow God by faith because the Spirit of God will enable us to finish the work He calls us to do. I know some of you are looking and going, I can't do that. I don't have the capacity. God's not counting on your capacity. He knows you don't have it. But the Spirit of God in you has unlimited capacity. He just says, be willing. Be willing, and I will work through you to accomplish my purposes. And number five, and, and, and closing, in light of eternity, which is, by the way, the only perspective that's valued, the only perspective that lasts, in light of eternity, God's evaluation of your life is the only one that matters. Now, you saw what God wrote about Moses in Moses' obituary. When you die, and you will, somebody's going to write your obituary. And I can promise you, you're not going to like it. I'm just saying. Because it won't be truthful. They will say things about you that are far better than what really was. And they will miss some things that were really, really good, and they didn't write them down. But when you get to heaven and you stand before the king, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the only evaluation that matters. So live according to that today. I love you guys. Now that you know, do next week, Lord willing, 
We begin in Romans, which is serious meat and potatoes. So we're looking forward to that. You've been listening to Manna at Valley Baptist Church. To hear this lesson and more, subscribe to our podcast, Manna at Valley Baptist Church, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Manna is taught by Brad Hannock and meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California. We believe in doing life together, and we encourage you to join us on Sunday morning. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for studying with us. And now that you know, do.